0: Let's set the Business Week agenda for you on this Friday with so much going on. We've got a great uh, duo. Gina Martin-Adams back with us, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, certainly very familiar to our Bloomberg audiences on the phone from New Jersey. Dave Dave Wilson is with us, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News, uh, joining us uh, on the Access Line from New Jersey as well. Gina, I want to start with you. Uh, We're kind of falling apart, it feels, a little bit, but I don't know. How do you see the equity trade right now?
2: You yeah, know, I, mean, I think this is a little bit of pullback after an absolutely rip-roaring uh, April. I think a lot of people kind of came through April and said, wow, what, how did we get such an extraordinary gain in the midst of all this fundamental weakness? I think the other thing you have is we, when we kind of knew this was coming, the big tech stocks not really reporting exactly what investors had wanted to hear. And that was a big part of this earnings season was the sentiment around, okay, there's going to be a ton of weakness. But there are going to be bright spots in the index. Those bright spots are going to be some healthcare companies, some technology companies, maybe some consumer staples companies. And this week has been, for us, a little bit about some disappointment on the tech front. It's not that these companies are turning over, it's just that they're not really satisfying expectations, which were for them to really hold up the index, in my mind.
1: Well, Dave Wilson, come on in here because tech has been a theme that we have talked a lot about the NASDAQ. It's now down 4% for the year. It was flirting with being flat there for a little while.
3: certainly was. And, you know, you talk about disappointment, and you have to look at Amazon front and center. I mean, as they uh, looked ahead and talked about what they're going to have to spend to keep their workers safe in their warehouses – you know, because of the coronavirus. I mean, we've kind of seen this story before in terms of the company being able to just go out and spend lots of money to accomplish something and you know, profits, uh, either they come or they don't. And so that's what uh, CEO Jeff Bezos is looking at at this point. People don't like the idea. I mean, Amazon's down about 7%. And we're seeing sort of all the other uh, major technology-type companies lower as well. You know, Apple's kind of gone back and forth today, but it's down a little more than 1% after their results. I mean, they talked about, you know, CEO Tim Cook did when he uh, talked to us anyway about how uh, late March, early April w- was pretty depressed in terms of their business. It started to pick up a bit uh, later in the month. But, you know, there's a whole lot of back and forth there. And what really jumps out, arguably, is you've got a day where crude oil is actually up, and energy stocks are the worst performers in the S&P 500. A lot of that, no doubt, tied into yeah, ExxonMobil totally. uh, reporting their first loss in decades. Uh, shares down yeah. more than 5.5%. Chevron also weighed in. Uh, And it is lower by 2.3% as we speak.
0: We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. It's also the cover story of the magazine this week. So more on Exxon to come. All right, team, thank you so much. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, along with Dave Wilson.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
0: In terms of mixed
1: messages, I feel like we got some mixed messages this week on the medical side, too, uh, Mm -hmm. Carol. And... It's just one of these moments where we're trying to find the way forward, right?
0: Yeah, exactly, and especially on a day where I was reading stories about, hey, folks, get ready for a two-year outbreak when it comes to the virus, uh, and we're trying to figure out, okay, can we get a vaccination in nine months? Can we get it in two years? What does it take? Dr. Ian Laspader is always our voice of reason. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center. He's back with us on the phone in New York. Um, Ian, nice to have you back with us. So where are we in all of this? Can you, can you kind of filter through... What makes sense? What doesn't make sense?
5: Uh, I hope to. Thank you. Uh, You know, to me, the COVID-19 story is really like uh, Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities, uh, which he wrote in 1859. You know, we have the outpatient story where, you know, patients are seen by telemedicine. And many of them are really getting cabin fever. They're anxious, depressed on home isolation. They've gained weight, uh, we call it the COVID-19, like the freshman 15, they're gaining the COVID-19 uh, due to inactivity, they miss friends and family, you know, kids and grandkids. And then they have mild COVID symptoms, cough, fever, chest pain, diarrhea, muscle ache, and most of them will be okay. And then we have the inpatient story, where really, I, I was rounding in the hospital earlier today, critically ill patients, you know, severe pneumonia, heart and kidney failure, uh, really due to these microthrombi or clots. Um, and many have risk factors, diabetes, hypertension, COPD, obesity. Uh, and really, diagnosis is like the tale of two cities. You know, we have nasal swabs and blood tests, which are now more available, so we're ordering a lot of those outpatient blood tests. You know, and many patients are coming back negative. So uh, they say, when can we leave the house? So that's the tale of two cities. And treatment is like a tale of two cities. You know, we've learned a lot of medications are not helpful. The hydroxychloroquine and zithromax uh, clearly did not pan out. And then we have sort of maybe helpful medications, Uh, the IL-6 inhibitors, remdesivir, maybe those have some issues. Right. And maybe convalescent plasma. Uh, That is one of the recent studies that we're doing now that we know people have antibodies. uh, We're collecting those and infusing them.
4: And that may
5: be uh, really a a breakthrough. We'll have to see how that is. And that actually goes back about 100 years. Uh, These convalescent antibodies were used uh, 100 years ago, obviously for a different disease. But uh, for a variety of diseases, uh, it's still been used. So, you know, we really have uh, uh, a real dichotomy on on where to go and, and sort of what to do.
1: All right. So Dr. Lesbader, sorry, I dropped off there for a second. We're having all sorts of like weird technical issues uh, that are familiar to all of our listeners out there uh, trying to work from home. Probably you as well, Dr. Lesbader, but you know, you're a high tech guy. You've got it all under control. I know. Um, So I know you've been talking about sort of all these variety of things that we may be approaching plasma and and whatnot. I, I do wonder what does it look like sort of on the ground right now? What's the mood among the healthcare professionals that like you and, and folks you're talking to amid these sort of like mixed messages that we're getting?
5: You know, so uh, again, that tale of two cities, um, you know, I think for, for those of us who are uh, wear two hats, you know, it's outpatient doctors. We're starting to see patients now back in the office. Elective surgery uh, is being permitted to, you know, procedures and colonoscopy slowly, that sort of thing. You know, and I think it is interesting. Many patients are afraid to come in. They like the telemedicine. Uh, they're afraid that uh, to almost leave the house at this point. Hmm. And they have a lot of anxiety and depression. You know, and then uh, you've got the inpatient doctors who I think are still very, very stressed and, and a little depressed as well. With really critically ill patients, some of these patients are in, you know, for a month or more, uh, some even some even two months and and uh, you know to care for these very complex patients is uh, is very draining. Staff changes all the time. no one can be there twenty four seven you know and and I think that's a challenge for everyone to maintain that. Uh, level of uh, intensity with sick inpatients. So to, again, the Tale of Two Cities.
0: I have to say, I your Tale of Two Cities resonates so much with us because we talked about mixed messages at the top of our show, which is what we felt like the week was, whether it was on the medical front, whether it was on the earnings front, um, just so many different kind of back and forths here uh, and confusion. And I think it's certainly playing out a little bit in the financial markets. What do you make of that report by Moderna that says the coronavirus outbreak may last for two years and won't be controlled until about two thirds of the world's population is immune.
5: Right, so we, we certainly know uh, herd immunity for many diseases is really what um, stops these big outbreaks and hospital surges. And since we're just now really beginning to test antibodies on people, blood tests, and so uh, you, you can go to your doctor and if you think you've had COVID, They can order an antibody test. We'll have to see about who's paying for all this, but we can certainly order it. Um, And then I think we're going to have a lot more data as to how close are we to herd immunity. But uh, what really gives people herd immunity is that vaccine. Mm -hmm. And even if we get a vaccine, no one is 100 percent sure if people uh, will get antibodies. And then we're not 100 percent sure those antibodies will really prevent you from getting COVID, especially if it mutates. So there's uh, a number of hills to climb, which I think is why the markets are a little uh, unsteady, shall we say.
1: And so... Ian, what do we do in, in the meantime, just as like human beings living in the world? Like, how should we be thinking about, you know, even the next month or so, maybe the, ne- the next two months, especially, I think it it's tricky for us who live in the tri-state area, because we're seeing, you know, other parts of the country reopen, and we can talk about the wisdom of that separately. But you know, sort of day to day. And you mentioned very importantly, I think a lot of the anxiety uh, and, and depression that, that people are feeling on the front lines and, and even here on the way back lines uh, that's happening. What do we do as, uh, as folks here?
5: You know, my sense is in most of life, you cannot be 100% safe. You know, you I've, I tell my patients, you know, when they ask about uh, informed consent or procedures, You know, you live in Manhattan. You walk across the street. You can fall on a pothole, break your ankle. You know, there there's a risk. There's a benefit, and there's a risk. And I my sense is that uh, we're beginning to um, lose the benefit of home isolation, and we're maybe getting into a higher risk arena. And I think people want to return to a more normal lifestyle. And certainly, as the weather gets warmer, and people want to go out. So my sense is we may have to take a little bit of risk since, you know, a vaccine is at least six months away. And, you know, people should wear masks. And I think people who have uh, serious uh, risk factors, and we've gone over those, uh, we can go over them again. But um, those people probably should be very, very careful. But for the majority of people, I think if they're hand washing and distancing and, and masks, many should be able to resume a more normal lifestyle. And you know, we'll have to see if the governor and the mayor, you know, buys on that. I think eventually they're going to have to buy onto that because I don't think we are going to get a hundred percent solution either with medication at this point. Um, uh, certainly not as outpatient medicine uh, or a vaccine. So I do think the inpatients are better. I think we have better uh, whether it's plasma or remdesivir. I think we have a few more options for the very, very sick patients, yeah. which is encouraging. Mm-hmm.
0: So taking risks, does that mean just get used to wearing masks and just being kind of extra careful? I think about the medical community that has been surrounded by this, right? You guys have figured it out. So what does it mean on a more kind of normal basis? Is it just masks? And I do wonder about those more vulnerable. Does that mean they aren't allowed to kind of go out and and have a more normal life?
5: Uh, That's a good question. I mean, I think that's an individual decision. Uh, as to uh, people's individual uh, risk factors. I think if you've got high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, obesity, lung disease, uh, maybe you need to stay in for for quite a while longer until the number of cases drops dramatically. And we should know that. We're tracking that. But I think if you're otherwise seemingly healthy, uh, you know, there are many staff in, in the hospital who wear masks and are up close with very sick patients, you know, and they're negative. So, not everyone, obviously, that poor nurse who, who was in the ER. And, you know, so it is healthcare workers definitely can get this. Um, but I think it's certainly not everyone who is getting it. So, I mm. think we are approaching uh, a time when it will be reasonably safe to return to a more normal existence. And I think we have to do that, not just economically, but psychologically.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking to a longtime New York City resident earlier today, uh, has worked on Wall Street and its environs for a long time. and, And she was saying, you know, one of the things I think we're all anticipating and I worry about this is, you know, true. Different people are going to make different choices and have different tolerances of risk. And yet we're all sort of out there together. And I do worry about sort of the social contract to some extent, almost breaking down, not to be too dark about it, but, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of confrontations happening, like literally in the streets of New York City, you know, over, you know, one person choosing to wear a mask, another person, not someone standing too close. Like those are the things that are hard to anticipate, right?
5: All of these crises, I think, give us opportunities to do good or to do bad. Yeah. And I think we see those first responders who are volunteering, doctors, colleagues volunteering to go to the hospital, help sick people. And I think you've got people who take advantage and are looting, or you know, breaking into uh, stores, or seeing this as an opportunity for crime. But I think at the end of the day, we need to appeal to people's better angels and um, appeal to them to uh, have that social contract, be careful, try and protect other people, do good things, help other people. And part of that will be uh, just being a little bit uh, more careful. And I think
1: uh,
5: I see people in the street wearing masks. Everyone is complying, and I think that should reduce risk. It's not going to eliminate risk. We cannot eliminate the risk to zero.
0: No, right. Yeah, I do think it's amazing how quickly we've all gotten more comfortable. And I do look at someone who maybe doesn't have a mask, and I'm kind of like, wait a minute, you need to have a mask on. I know. It really Um, is amazing. Ian, thank you as always. We really do appreciate all the time you give us and really kind of helping us filter through so many of the stories that are out there and making sense of it. Stay safe. Dr. Ian Lustbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center. Jason, joining us once again on the phone from New York.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: All right, we do want to get to our next guest, uh, because one of the concerns throughout the pandemic has been the access to our food supply chain. So far, it seems to have worked despite some empty shelves and limitations on purchases, but the shutting down of meat processing plants over health concerns for workers, that has definitely created another round of worry about shortages of uh, meat supplies in particular. Let's get into that with Stu Leonard Jr., the president and CEO of Stu Leonard's. They have been around for more than 40 years uh, and very well known for those of us who live in the New York metro area. Stu joining us on the phone from Norwalk, Connecticut. Stu, nice to find uh, you here with us. So tell me a little bit about... Yes, thank you. Yeah. Hey, um, hey, I
4: just want to also mention I am on the front line along with our, our 3,000 yes. people at Stu Leonard's, and we've been out there every day in the public trying to give our communities food uh, all day. So I know your last guest just said he didn't know what it's like to be on the line. We know. And yeah. It, It's very demanding, uh, uh, very demanding today. And I give our team at Stu Leonard's a huge, big pat on the back. I, I,
0: I, I totally agree that this situation has made us rethink who are those crucial workers and and, you know, I don't think we often have walked into supermarkets and thought of it that way. But I certainly have said I certainly feel that way right now because they have kept us, you know, really been taking care of us. And, and that goes for your workers as well.
1: Well, and especially given, Stu, the, sort of the number of people that are, are coming in and out. And, and I count myself uh, among a very happy longtime uh, Stu Leonard's customer living well, here in thank Westchester. You. So uh, certainly been the beneficiary. We do want to ask you about, you know, how Carol kicked off the conversation there. About the supply chain, because I do wonder for you, what does this look like on the front lines? Well,
4: first of all, a nice thing about us is we deal with smaller, more family farms. Um, Tyson closed their plant. A huge, big, big plant. There's probably 3,000 people working at it, maybe more. We buy zero from Tyson. So that did not affect us at all. We are buying from the amish chicken farmer in pennsylvania we got an egg farmer down in pennsylvania uh we get uh, uh fish right out of out of maine from from small you know fishing boats going out so um we've been able to keep a constant flow coming into Stu leonard's and i've dealt with these people for 20 30 years now you know we're a family business ourselves and they have assured me that they will supply us with the food that we need
0: and does that mean all kinds of food? I know we were talking about a little bit in the newsroom, um, you know, that's, you know, there's high-end meat, there's organic beef, you know, versus kind of regular stuff. I know you guys tend to, to play into the higher end. That's not, you're not worried about that being um, short in supply?
4: Well, you know, we're, we're doing the regular porterhouse steaks and everything, but people do want organic and they do want uh, uh, grass-fed. That's, those are big growing areas right now. We have not seen a limited supply of, of those right now. Uh, but like every business in America, the virus has affected everybody. Um, you know, the plants out in uh, the Midwest that are doing the meat, um, they're down like 25 to 30% in their production. And a lot of that has to do with the virus. And the second thing that has to do with there's a lot of people that do not want to come to work right now. Mm. Uh, we have – We give a 30-day unpaid sabbatical to our people to visit their families. We've had over 100 people take advantage of that now. We never expected that to happen. Um, So we've been on a hiring blitz, you know, trying to hire butchers and chefs and and bakers right now. And it's tough because the unemployment benefits are so good.
1: Right. Absolutely. So, you know, one one thing, just to go back to supply, and I want to talk about— workers again in a second stew but on the supply front i especially given your family and your long history in the dairy business i do wonder about the dairy supply chain uh too you know looking beyond the the beef and and the meat you know we've heard about you know farms having to dump their milk and things like that how does that get worked out in your estimation
4: well it's very sad you know obviously everybody you know, especially in the dairy business, you have your, your cows, and they're producing milk every day. They don't know anything about COVID-19. Right. And all of a sudden, all, all the schools close,
3: hmm.
4: And a lot of milk went into the school system. And so there's just not enough demand right now out there for all of this milk these cows are continually producing. So, unfortunately, what do you do with extra milk? You can make butter and cheese out of it. But um, there's only so much of that you can do, um, and and so you know we have unfortunately breaks your heart because there's so many people that need food out there today. Exactly, but have had they have had to dump some milk.
0: I mean that's a, that I have to say, and I understand it's not easy to get I guess from point A to point B and get all that excess food to people who need it, but I have to say it just seems. It just doesn't make sense, and and that we can't no, and that we can't figure out how to take that food and get it. We're you know we're talking to a lot of chefs who, you know, of course, shut down their restaurants and they're creating, you know, meals to get out to communities where people have lost their jobs and they have no food.
4: Yeah.
0: How come we can't figure this out?
4: Uh, I you know, you know what happens is, is is there, you know, a lot of these industries have to plan ahead, like you know how many. How many hogs are you going to have? You hear, you know, they're they're feeding strawberries to some of the hogs right now because there's there's not enough demand for the they overproduce for strawberries. So what's happened with this COVID nineteen and the panic buying and it's just disrupted the entire uh, um, food chain and also what people are eating today. Uh, so you know it's been very hard to manage and and everybody's doing better every day, and we're getting it under control, but right now you're you're seeing some real blemishes in the system.
0: I don't want to point fingers, because I know this was a truly black swan that nobody really had planned for, but could the government, the federal government, have stepped in and created <clears throat> some better systems off the bat to kind of connect point A to point B, especially when it comes to the food system?
4: Well, you know, That's the big question everybody has, and obviously Washington is debating that back and forth. But I would just say that we have been in the food business ourselves uh, for 50 years, you know, and and we've been through Hurricane Sandy, 9-11, you know, uh, uh, all different snowstorms, you know, right in the metro New York area here, and we couldn't have planned for anything like this. Mm. This just... Even all the planning we thought we had done, and we, we've we always handled uh, these big things, we felt pretty well, but this was just above and beyond anything anybody, I think, could have forecasted.
1: So, Stu, you know, you guys have been at the forefront of, of a lot of things, and, you know, our family at least really counts on you for a lot of the things you described, sort of the sourcing at local farms, and, you know, you have delicious food that that you sell, And I do wonder, especially knowing your customer base like you do, how does your business change on on the other side of this? What are things that maybe you do less of, you do more of, especially given, you know, you've managed through all of these other crises, you and your family, what does this crisis change on the other side for you?
4: Well, you know, that is the crystal ball question right there. Um, You know, what is retailing going to look like post-COVID-19? And, I think one thing that we definitely have noticed is delivery. We used to deliver 5% of all our food to customers. Um, And now if you go into the store today, they're 25% getting it delivered and also curbside thick. So the question is, what's the stickiness of this? Where's it Mm going to land? Is it going to be 10%, 15%? You know, that's definitely changed. The other thing is a lot of people are buying curbside now. Uh, Look at the restaurant business, and, and, um, you you know, everybody's getting curbside pickup. I mean, what will the restaurant look like? A lot of people may say, hey, we really like that, that we could go and pick that up. So there's some things like that that are going to change. And as as far as the the, uh, products go, people are just buying what they normally bought except more of it. Except hmm. for things like hand sanitizer, which we never carried before at the store. We might have had some Purell, which you can't buy right now because uh, it's just sold out. But um, hand sanitizer, I think, is going to be an item that we will stock at Stu Leonard's in the future. Even, I don't know, but masks. Right. You know, uh, everybody's wearing masks. I I couldn't even imagine a day in my life where I walked in the store and saw everybody our team members and our customers all wearing masks we have boxes of masks in the store right now i never would
1: have thought we'd sell them yeah. Will
4: that will people still want to wear masks post covid19 i don't know
1: yeah so, well a, a lot of big yeah. questions uh a lot of big questions for sure. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Stu Leonard Jr., the CEO of Stu Leonard's. And as I say, as a customer, I can vouch for them. It's such a great place. It's yeah. one of those things like you go in and just the way it's laid out. Um, it's just it's like it's the way a stores are meant to be, right? It's like a local treasure uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. So uh, definitely enjoyed them over the years. And as he said rightly at the top, those guys very much uh, on the front lines and certainly appreciate all the work they're doing. All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is one of those conversations that I feel like is going to help us frame this crisis in a new and different and maybe more sophisticated and nuanced way. No pressure on Kenneth Feinberg, attorney at the law offices of Kenneth R. Feinberg well known to our audience for working on so many of the biggest crises of our time. He joins us on the phone from Washington. Kenneth, great to have you with us, as always.
6: Glad to be on. Thanks.
1: All right. So where are we in, in this crisis? What is new and different about this global pandemic versus some of the major things you've worked on, be it TARP, be it 9-11? I could go on and on.
6: Well, of course, the isolation. After 9-11, the tragedy of 9-11, the foreign terrorist attack, everybody, all citizens came together, very bipartisan way, social cohesion. After the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the Obama administration came together with the American people, immediately drafted a compensation plan of action. The trouble with the coronavirus and Mother Nature is that uh solutions involve isolation, mm-hmm. and you don't have that uh social reinforcement that you would normally have after a um uh, a most unfortunate tragedy that makes this particularly difficult to cope with
0: yeah, and to get to the other side of it, we have constantly kind of talked about this you know kind of juxtaposition of different forces of wanting to get back to work, wanting to get back to normal, but we also, also also, want to be safe. And so, I don't know, how do you see it? How do you see some of the programs that have been implemented, whether it's stimulus programs that kind of help us get to the other side?
6: Well, first of all, in order to get to the other side with stimulus programs of any type, whether it's thousands of dollars or trillions of dollars, there are two critically important variables that i've learned about over the years first any resolution must be bipartisan you cannot cope with a disaster like the coronavirus unless everyone comes together in an apolitical way and to the credit of the congress uh... the trillion dollar plus stimulus packages that have emanated from the congress so far and from the trump administration uh, largely have been bipartisan, uh, with a minimum amount of, uh, of polarization and opposition. So that's good. But the second thing I've learned, often to my detriment, a hard, hard lessons learned, you better get the money out fast and efficiently.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Because all the talk in the world, slapping yourselves on the back about a great thing this is, If you don't deliver what is promised, thereby undercutting the expectation of the American people, the program is going to be tarnished. And every bit more important than enactment of stimulus or enactment of any legislation, however bipartisan, is that you get the money out, you get it out fast, and you get it to the right people, and expectations are met. And if they're not, You
1: are laboring with a real, real obstacle. And so it does feel like... Kenneth Feinberg, that some things were done in haste in order to sort of get it out. Uh, Mistakes were made. I think most people would concede uh, that point. Is that just to be expected, given the velocity at which this happened? Or were there things that could have been done and maybe can be done better in the future in order to ensure that it gets out and gets out in the right way, these funds? Well, that, that's a tough question. On the one
6: hand, there's never been anything quite like this, coronavirus sure. stimulus in the trillions. I mean, I can empathize and sympathize a little bit with administrators with the responsibility for getting the money out, but that may be in mitigation, but it doesn't solve the problem because um, it, it it doesn't help if, as an operational matter, whether it's the rollout of Obamacare or whether it's this or any other number of programs, if you, if you tout a solution and then there are problems in delivery, in administration, in operations, so that the money is going slower or not going to the right people, that's a real problem that better be corrected fast or uh, the, the citizen disapproval will simply grow.
0: And it's not just disapproval, right? It's also just there are people out there that have absolutely no safety net. And we're, you know, we know these problems were out there, Kenneth, but I feel like the virus has certainly laid them bare even more so. Um, and we really have left people out there in the cold. Oh, I think that's right.
6: And it's, it, what magnifies the problem, of mm-hmm. course, is what we spoke about five minutes ago. People are out there in the cold alone. There's not a whole lot of social cohesion. When it comes to the virus, because you have to suffer basically in private, in, an, in, an, in isolation where you don't have that social reinforcement from friends, colleagues, fellow employees, etc.
0: So I'm curious, have you reached out to the administration to maybe give them a hand? Have they reached out to you? Has anyone reached out to you to help in this process? I've received
6: over the past few weeks uh, a series of, 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 of calls from various members of Congress. Talking about whether or not uh, what lessons have been learned so far, should we do something like a coronavirus nine eleven type victim compensation fund mm-hmm. to compensate victims of the virus, health providers, essential workers, victims, citizens there's been some talk about that. there's been some talk about creating an alternative um, uh, to liability for companies where you'll recall during nine eleven in order to protect the airlines and the airline manufacturers and the World Trade Center from lawsuits. Mm -hmm. There were a series of uh, 9-11 compensation funds created where I uh, administered funds voluntarily, voluntarily to anybody who took that 9-11 public money. uh, They had to promise not to litigate, not to go to court. And, of course, it worked smashingly. The 9-11 fund, 97% of all the people that could have gone to court, rather, came into the fund voluntarily. I distributed over $7 billion of taxpayer money and lawsuits. There were only 94 lawsuits nationwide, arising out of the, uh, the 9-11 attacks. Mm. So that's another alternative that uh, is, I assume, being considered. Right. But I don't know where the administration
1: stands, and I don't know where the Congress stands. Those were just mm. you know, inquiries from, right. from congressmen. And without divulging your private conversations, I mean, what is your at least initial take on the idea of a compensation fund for health care workers?
6: Well, you better be careful. You know, you, you raise a very interesting issue. Think about it. Healthcare workers may be a compensation fund for them because of their heroism uh, in in dealing with the virus at local hospitals. Very good. Now, wait a minute. What about the policeman on the beat who contracts the virus, helping people get to the hospital? What about the mailmen, 10 mailmen, mail workers nationwide have died? What about the essential workers now in these food processing plants in Mm -hmm. Iowa? You, You open this up to a 9-11-type fund, and you immediately confront a very thorny public policy issue. Who's eligible? Mm-hmm. Who's eligible for this?
1: Well, it's uh, interesting and- you say that. It's interesting you say that, uh, Kenneth, because we just had a conversation earlier in the show with Stu Leonard, you know, mm-hmm. who runs Stu Leonard's here in the in tri-state area. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And he essentially was saying, and and rightly I think very few would disagree with him, his workers, his grocery store workers, they're frontline. They're yeah. dealing with people uh, every day, all sorts of people coming in, and they are providing an essential service. So you open that up. You think about restaurant workers. We talked with Tom Calicchio yesterday. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, these are people who really could make a, a strong case. So you're exactly right. I mean, bad things happen to good
6: people every day in this country. I remember during my administration of the 9 11 Fund, dear Mr. Feinberg. My son died in Oklahoma City mm. in the terrorist attack committed by an American terrorist. Where's well, my check? Uh, you better be careful. I'm not saying you can't do it, but you, you well, better you know you better think this through.
0: Well, that's a really good point, Ke- Kenneth. Because some of the discussions we are having too, especially when we talk about state bailouts, city bailouts, you know, where do you draw the line, especially? You know, where there were, or, you know, when you look at some of the industries, you know, the restaurant industry is a tough one from the get go, even when it's successful. You know, who do you help out when you're talking about stimulus or do you do blanket checks because you just got to protect our economy, essentially?
6: Well, that, that's, that's why we have elected officials making the judgment call with the understanding that the ballot box, at the end of the day, it's the ballot box that determines whether those public officials in Congress and state legislatures, the administration, governors, mayors, did they make the right call? And uh, the 9-11 fund was exactly the right call made Mm -hmm. by the Bush administration, bipartisan, supported by not only Senator Hagel of Nebraska, but Senator Kennedy, and uh, Congressman Gebhardt, and um, uh, so it was just Senator Schumer. So I mean, you you had that type of consensus. Whether you can get that today, and how you wanna, if you wanna um, uh, try and draft uh, um, a compensation program designed to minimize lawsuits, and 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 uh, how broad you want to create that without making it impossible. That those are very very difficult, challenging public policy issues to be resolved.
1: Well, and one of the other issues, and, and we've sort of alluded to this a, a little bit, uh, Kenneth Feinberg, is this notion of: Are you helping workers by help by? bailing out or giving relief to a big company, a big airline, a big corporation, whether it's in the hospitality industry, transportation industry, or or something else? Or should you be going directly to the people, directly to the workers? How do you find that balance?
6: Well, that's a very difficult balance. Now, in Europe, as you know, they have largely gone in the direction of bailing out the companies with the the, uh, admonition, the requirement, the prescription that that bailout money be used to maintain as close to full employment as you can. No pass-through to shareholders, no pass-through for profits. It's more direct assistance designed to avoid unemployment compensation by keeping workers on the job. Now, in the stimulus package in the United States, it was really, uh, really the opposite. It seems that most of the money designed to help workers were in the form of unemployment. Right. Uh, sup- supplementing existing unemployment compensation. Uh, uh, to what extent should any stimulus package that goes to airlines or to Fortune 500 companies or right. to small businesses be required to use those funds to maintain employment so that you can stay in business? Yeah. Again, tough policy
1: choices. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely well we'd love to keep in touch with you on this we always really value your expertise and your experience no one literally has the experience you do uh in dealing with all of this kenneth feinberg attorney at the law offices of kenneth r feinberg joining us on the phone from washington he's seen it all carol i mean he, he really
0: has TARP, and, you know bp Deepwater yeah. horizon the boston marathon bombing boeing's yeah. uh, compensation for 737 max Families, yeah. I mean, you're right. Nobody has that experience. Absolutely. So, great person to check in with.
3: I'm driving
1: my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I wanna drive. Just drive, sing it, baby. Just drive
4: baby. It's the question that drives
1: us. Drive.
4: The drive to the close. That
1: punk music will drive us
4: till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, it's time to the drive to drive to the close. It's time to the drive to the close. I don't know. It's it's just
0: yeah. It's It's been one of those like we're
1: we're headed toward it, uh, and and for good reason because (laughs) it's been quite a week. Uh, Let's get into it with Kara Murphy, Chief Investment Officer of Goldman Sachs Personal Financial Management, back with us on the phone from Dallas. Kara, it's been a while. Have you been?
2: I've been good. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So what's going on down in Dallas? I mean, before we get into what's happening in the markets, you know, we're sort of in our little bubble in the tri-state area here, as you know. And I know it looks a little bit different on the ground there in Texas and in Dallas. Uh, What do you make of this, and and what does it feel like there?
2: Well, I will say, having lived in the New York area for 20 years, um, I'm very grateful to live in Dallas. Yes. (laughs) Simply because... We're not in the middle of a hot zone. We have a lot more space. It's been a beautiful spring. A lot of people are out walking. Um, but honestly, I've hardly left my street in six weeks. So yeah. I only know what's happening like within the three blocks around my house.
1: <laughs> right. So you guys are sort of doing the same thing, sort of sheltering in place and, you know, sort of abiding by uh, all of those same things. Although it sounds like it may loosen up a little bit in Texas maybe this weekend. Is that right?
2: That's what they're telling us. So schools are, um, you know, distance learning through the end of the school year, which ends earlier than for you folks on the East Coast. Uh, next week, they're supposed to start loosening up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with some people allowed back in movie theaters and restaurants. But quite honestly, I think us, like a lot of people, are not in any rush to go back to crowded right. places.
0: Yeah. yeah well, well, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that. Right. That's exactly, I think, the what we're hearing from a lot of folks, that we're not in a rush to, to go back to uh, all of those things because we're, we're a little nervous. How does that in, impact potentially the investment environment, in your view, in terms of what people do, what they might not be doing on the other side of this?
2: Yeah, so I, I think it's really important to be watching consumer behavior um, because a lot of people are sort of keying off of when will states start to open up, but then individuals have the choice about whether or not they go back to their regular lives um and so we'll be watching very closely to see you know how much these consumer spending numbers rebound i think there are other areas that are pretty clear are going to take longer things like travel like how comfortable people are going to be getting back on a plane going in a hotel Um, certain things will bounce back quicker you know i I think restaurants probably people will start to feel more comfortable especially if they can sit outside but it's going to be a big question and and i think that's where also you're going to see very big regional differences
1: Yeah, it certainly feels like that. I mean, we keep talking about sort of this checkerboard of the United States. And and as you rightly point out there at the top, you know, obviously it looks very different in Dallas than it does in New York, even with some of the same kind of human uh, reactions day to day. So we obviously have more earnings to come, but and clearly a lot of what we're seeing from an earnings perspective doesn't bake in everything that we saw over the last month or so, or month to six, seven yeah. weeks, you know, where, how do you sort of synthesize everything you've seen so far, and, and what does it tell you about sort of the next quarter?
2: Yeah, so you're right in that um, this earnings season is really just giving us the very first peak under the hood in terms of what's been happening in the companies, because it's reflecting only that first month or so when coronavirus really started to hit. Um, but I think there are some lessons that we can glean. Uh, so one is sales are down fairly significantly, but earnings are down more, right? So that tells us that profit margins are being squeezed. All of this happened so rapidly that companies didn't have time to really right-size their expense base for the lower sales. So I think we'll see more of that in Q2. Um, I also think it's interesting to note that more than half of the earnings decline that we've seen so far is concentrated in energy and financials. And so this is where, you know, we talk about regional differences, but there are really significant differences in different sectors of the market. Um, You know, energy had its own kind of set of issues heading into this with, you know, some oversupply in that market. Then you throw in this dramatic decline in demand. uh, There's some real challenging issues there. And then, of course, financials grappling with a much lower interest rate environment, potential credit issues. Um, But then as you start to look at, at earnings outside of those two sectors, it looks, Um, much better still not great right we know that there's more negative to come but it is a tale of two areas
0: so were you suggesting to clients especially when after the market was beaten up and before the bounce back any suggestions in terms of you know committing new money um, or or were you being more cautious I'm just curious about your thinking here
2: yeah so we've talked a lot about kind of um, number one it's most important I think to stick with your long-term view I know that's not exciting um, but that is what really sort of causes people to make good decisions. Um, and when people were really feeling very anxious at the bottom in late March, um, it was a lot easier to be able to talk about, but this is your financial plan. These are the objectives. You know, you're still on track to do that. Um, so that's, what, that, that's like one part of the component that's most important. But then the second one is to be able to have a very structured rebalancing process, you know, whether you're um, – averaging into the market. And so we really stuck with our process in terms of rebalancing um, and actually started to recommend that people re-risk or at least consider re-risking if it was within their long-term objectives. um, in late March, early April.
1: And so, Kara, final question for you. Only got about a a minute left. I mean, as you generalize, or if you can not generalize, the conversations you're having with your clients, knowing that people have different risk appetites, they're further along in their career or earlier, um, how... Anxious are they? How worried are they about this market? Or did April sort of do its job in terms of making people feel a little bit better?
2: I think, by and large, our investors have been remarkably calm throughout this, and it's been really amazing to see. Um, I think going forward, some of the common questions that we're getting are, you know, with this lower rate environment, where are we going to find yield? That's going to be a challenge. Um, And then, of course, there's also the long-term concern. We have this massive fiscal stimulus package. How is everybody going to pay for it?
1: Yeah. No, that's a really good question and one we probably need to be talking uh, more and more about, especially if there's more stimulus to come because it is eye-popping when you uh, look at all those figures. All right. Kara Murphy, Chief Investment Officer for Goldman Sachs Personal Financial Management, joining us on the phone from Dallas also, should point out. Proud graduate of Georgetown University. You knew I was going to get that in there. Uh, you I was no. going to say it. Shocking. No, but good
0: stuff. No, it's good I love- Listen, good. I-, I get it.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.